Thanks for joining us this week for the Church at Starkey Hills podcast. Be sure to visit our website at starkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Amen. 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 All right. Hopefully you had an opportunity to go before God and just worship Him a little bit. He was expecting you this morning, probably uh, with great anticipation, more than you probably had for Him. It's just the nature of God in His loving ways toward us. I want to invite you to open your Bible to Daniel chapter 7. It's over in the Old Testament. It's a prophetic book. And uh, and, and uh, chapters 1 through 6, it's historical narrative. It's stuff that we already know happened. It's it's just a record in our history books. And chapter 7, the gears changed and gets a little freaky because it moves to the prophetic side of who Daniel was. Daniel was a child of God who did and saw God do amazing things in his life. And he's also a prophet. Now, when we use the word prophet or prophecy, we need to unpack that a little bit. Because that word can mean two things. It can mean, a prophecy can mean to foretell the future or to foretell means to proclaim truth with, uh, with power that God has already declared. And so today we'll hear people say, I've got a prophetic word or uh, I'd like to uh, put some prophecy over. You've got to be careful with that because to share what God has already declared is prophecy to foretell. But when it comes to predicting the future, it's risky business. In fact, in the Old Testament, if you declared yourself as a prophet and you begin to uh, foretell future events, that was fine as long as you were accurate in your predictions. But in the Old Testament, if you ever missed one, there's a simple solution. They'd take you out in the backyard, they'd rock you. Okay, game over. So it's scary business. Daniel, it's important to understand that because if we're going to read the book of Daniel and other prophets like him, and we want to, uh, we, we, we need to go back and look and see how accurately they foretold or prophesied the future. Because we live in a world that wants to predict things. We want to predict uh, our reduction or depletion of global resources. We want to uh, talk about the depletion of the ozone layer. We want to talk about all of these future events, things of the future. We, we narrow it down. We fine-tune it to the very place where we want to talk about the weather. And quite honestly, we can't even... Pre we got the Doppler, all right? We can't even predict the weather. You know how we know what the weather is? Go outside and look, all right? It's that inaccurate. And, and when it comes to mankind, predicting the future of humanity? Goose egg. We got nothing. We got nothing short of God, and yet God knows it all. He knows a billion years from now as accurately as He knows a billion years ago. In fact, He's outside of time. He's timeless. He sees all of eternity in both directions in the moment as if it's happening in the now. That's God. Now, you say, well, He refers to time in His Word. That's for you. That's for me. God transcends. He's outside of that. He created time for us, not for Him. So, so when we think about future events and all of that, you know, you hear this, uh, you, let me back up. Do, I want to ask you something. Do you remember, have you ever heard of a guy named Dr. Emmett Brown? Anybody heard of Dr. Emmett Brown? Just say, I have. Okay. Wow, some old people in here. Right? If you haven't heard of him, have you heard of Marty McFly? Okay, he went with Dr. Emmett Brown. It was a movie called Back to the Future. Now, you'll remember this movie because Michael J. Fox played this guy named Marty McFly. And Marty McFly knew Dr. Emmett Brown, and he created a time travel machine, which was a DeLorean, a stainless steel, a stainless steel 
car. And you could get in that car and you could get it up to a certain speed at a certain time, lightning would strike and wherever you dialed in, <clears throat> hopefully that's where you're going to go. Now, it always creates some confusion because Marty McFly ended up going back to a time when his own mother was a teenager and his own mother had a crush on him. Now, that's weird. If, if you're like me, you get, you get so confused in, in the whole time travel thing. And yet Daniel writes a book as if he's a time traveler. He sees the future as real as he sees the present. And that's what we're going to see today as we look at the first half of Daniel chapter 7. Now, Daniel chapter 7 is a heavy book because it's prophetic. But often in God's prophecy, in His Word, if you keep reading, He unpacks, He discloses enough information where you can kind of know what He's talking about. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been reading in the Old Testament and you read, so you get to a chapter where it starts talking about beasts and crazy things and you're like, I got nothing, I, I, I got nothing. I don't even know what I'm talking, what He's talking about. Okay, And so you kind of read through it and you say, man, it's a little freaky, but I don't know what it's talking about. And sometimes fear sets in, man, is this going to happen to us? Well, today we're going to unpack the first three beasts of the four beasts coming out of the sea. And the title of the message is simply this, Back to the Future. Back to the Future. Now, as we get into Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, it's going to set the stage of where we're going. So watch this. Verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, In the first year of King Belshazzar. Now, let me pause right, that. You'll, right there. You'll remember King Belshazzar. He's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar who was the king behind the, the kingdom of Babylon. And Belshazzar was a young guy and he had wealth and he had all of this stuff at his fingertips, this amazing kingdom, and he didn't know what to do with it. And so, so now Daniel is going to go back in time so, to somewhere around chapter 3 or chapter 4 and now he's going to tell us about this vision, this dream that he had. Here's what he says. He says, Daniel had a dream filled with visions while he was lying on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream in summary fashion. He says in verse 2, Daniel now explained, I was watching in my vision during the night as the four winds of the sky were stirring up the great sea. He goes on and he says, Then four large beasts came up from the sea and they were different from one another. Kind of weird. It's not what we've been seeing in the first Six chapters, it's not what we typically talk about. You know, you go to work, hey, have, do you have a good night? Yeah, I had a dream, had some beast climbing up out of the sea, it was crazy. You know, you, if you did, you probably had too much bad Mexican or whatever, but you don't talk about that stuff. It's weird to us. And yet Daniel was a prophet, a seer of the future, and this is what he says. He says, I laid down to go to bed, and he said, in the middle of the night, I find myself standing on the shore of the great sea. Now, most commentators agree that the sea he's talking about is the Mediterranean Sea. So he's standing on the seashore. He didn't go to find shark teeth. He didn't go to work on his suntan. He didn't go to see a sunset. He went to see the future. And when he gets there, it's not a calm sea. It's a, it's a, it's a, a stirring sea. It says it begins to stir. It's like a hurricane sea. It's rocking and it's rolling. And out of this rock and rolling a Mediterranean Sea emerges these, uh, these four beasts and they're all different. Now, we're going to find out as we read further into chapter 7, 8, and 9 that the beast he's talking about are kingdoms and individual leaders of different kingdoms. Now, when he says the sea in prophecy, the sea represents mankind. It represents all people or, uh, for a time period. So when it refers to a sea, he's talking about mankind. So Daniel says, I'm standing on the shore, I'm looking at the sea that represents mankind, 
and it's just stirring, man. It's, it's unsettled. It's restless. And he paints a picture of humanity. It's the truth. When you talk about a sea that's rocking and rolling, represent, that's who we are. We're unsettled. We're restless. We're never really happy. We're never content. We're never satisfied. There's, there's arguments and fights, you know, husbands and wives and parents and children and, and neighbors and bosses and employees and states and nations and worlds. We're never settled. It's restless. It's a picture of the nature of mankind. So he paints this sea, this picture of this sea of people, and then he says there are these beasts, these four beasts, and they all come out and they're different. So we're going to look at these four beasts as we go forward. Now, here's what's cool about it. He's giving them a mascot. That's what he's doing. It's a mascot. So, so like here in Powell, we got the Powell Panthers. Anybody a Powell Panther? A way to come in strong. I was looking for, there it is, there it is. I thought, okay, yeah, we got Powell Panthers. We got Powell Panthers. Yeah, yeah, Powell, Powell Panthers. Okay. Okay, anybody from Halls, the Red Devils, go figure. But you're on the front row now. Okay, you're good. You're in the right place to fix the Red Devil. All right. Now, who would name their kids Red Devils? Yeah, that's my boy. He's a devil. Okay. Okay, Satan himself right there, number 32. All right. So, so you got Anderson County. You got Anderson County. You got the Mavericks, right? You Mavericks? Yeah, let me hear. Yeah, and most people don't even know what a Maverick is. What's that, cowboy? Okay, it's it's a steer. Is that what it is? Yes, well said. Okay, I had to ask myself. Okay, uh, you got all these. You got FBA Eagles. Okay, now that's that's the Christian school. You ain't the devils at the Christian school. We were in Florida and we saw a church. That had a foot that had a, a school and had a football team. I kid you not. Huge banner across the back of the uh, school. It said, West Side Christian, home of the fighting Christians. I said, Well, that's appropriate. You know, we got one of them back at the house. Okay. <clears throat> so it's a mascot, it's a representation of who they are. But these mascots are weird. It's not a panther or anything like that. It's it's a morphed, different kind of mascot. It's like the animal has spent too much time down at the cooling waters at the nuclear plant, okay? And so they've got some stuff that shouldn't be on there, and that's what we're going to see today. So the first one, the first beast, while he's standing on the shore, I'm going to call the lavish lion. Now watch what happens. He says in verse 4, he says the first one, the first beast, was like a lion with eagle's wings. You see, it's a little weird. A lion, that's cool, everybody gets it, but he's got, but he's got eagle wings on him, okay? And it says, as I watched, its wings were pulled off and it was lifted up from the ground and it was made to stand on two feet uh, like a human being. And a human mind, and your translation may say a heart, was given to it. So the first beast is this lion with eagle's wings that have been plucked off and now he stands up and he's got like a human heart and a human mind. Well, when we think about Babylon, that's the kingdom that this represents. The first kingdom that emerges out of the great sea among mankind to be a world leader from Daniel's vision is Babylon. And the leader of Babylon, <clears throat> the first one was Nebuchadnezzar. Now you'll remember the story, but, but Babylon was about material possessions and wealth. Okay, And so, so Babylon rises up out of it. And, and if you go to the Berlin Museum, you'll see where they have excavated parts of Babylon. 
And in that, they found at the primary gates of the kingdom of Babylon, these lions with eagle's wings. And so Nebuchadnezzar is represented by this lion with eagle's wings. But he's had his wings plucked off. Now, he's also known as a lion from other contemporary prophets of the day. Jeremiah says this about Nebuchadnezzar. In Jeremiah 4, 7, it says, Like a lion that has come up from its lair, the one who destroys nations has set out from his home base. He is coming out to lay your land waste. Jeremiah says Nebuchadnezzar is a leader and he's a lion, a roaring lion, and he's going to leave your country as a wasteland. Now, here's what happened. Nebuchadnezzar, you'll remember, he conquered all. He was a world leader built one of the greatest kingdoms in the history of mankind. And it became one of the wealthiest kingdoms in all of history. It was called the kingdom of gold. Because everywhere he went, he pillaged all of their wealth. He took all of their gold, all their possessions, and he accumulated this enormous amount of, of gold. You'll remember he erected what I called the big skinny, the 90-foot tall uh, golden image that he wanted people to worship. But I want you to notice in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31... Daniel um, interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, You, O king, were watching as a great statue, one of impressive size and extraordinary brightness, was standing before you, and its appearance caused alarm. Now, in that vision, you'll remember, he, he described this statue, and it started with a golden head. And he said, You are the golden head. But as the body goes down, it represents different kingdoms. And so Nebuchadnezzar is this guy. But Nebuchadnezzar, although he had all this wealth and all this power and all this prominence, he became very prideful. He became prideful in his material possessions. His world revolved around stuff, okay? And so you'll, in chapter 4, you'll remember he says this. He looks out. He comes out and he looked uh, at Babylon. And he's already been warned. Daniel already told him. He says, bro, listen. Your time is limited. You're coming, it's coming to an end because of your pridefulness. But yet, look what happens. In verse 30 of chapter 4, he says, The king uttered these words. <clears throat> He's looking at his kingdom. And he says, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built for a royal residence by my own mighty strength and for my majestic honor? That's how he starts out. He says, While these words were still on the king's lips, just like he had told Daniel before. And Daniel warned him. It says, A voice came down from heaven. It is hereby announced to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, that your kingdom has been removed from you. You will be driven from human society and you will live with the wild animals. You will be fed grass like oxen and seven periods of time or seven years will pass by for you before you understand that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and gives them to whomever he wishes. Now, in that very moment, this pronouncement about Nebuchadnezzar came true and he was driven from human society. He ate grass like oxen and his body became damp with the dew of the sky until his hair became long like an eagle's feathers and his nails like a bird's claws. You remember this? I mean, it's, this is not who you want to be. And it's all because of his prideful 
nature. It says, but at the end of the appointed time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I looked up toward heaven and my sanity returned to me. I extolled the Most High and I praised and I glorified the one who lives forever for his authority is an everlasting authority and his kingdom extends from one generation to the next. Nebuchadnezzar's story is a great story because even though consumed by pride, God disciplined him. He responded to him. Seven years of acting like a cow, okay? Hair as long as feathers and talons for your fingernails. But he got the message. And at the end of seven years, he repented. Man, he looked to God. He goes, boy, I've been looking at me. I should have been looking at you. I thought I had it all and you are it all, okay? And so his heart changed. He repented and God changed him. He lifted him. So here's what it is. In the vision, you remember, he's a lion with wings, power, swiftness to travel over lands, removed his wings, gave him a heart. It's a picture of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And all of his pridefulness in his material pursuit, God humbled him, plucked his wings, gave him a heart when he stood and he repented toward God. This, this beast, this kingdom is about materialism and possessions. It, even as a nation, I want you to understand something. There's not an eternity found in how much possessions we can accumulate. There's not an endless season for us to enjoy the wealth that we accumulate. And, and, and this was a great nation. Babylon was absolutely incredible. You remember how fortified it was? The river Euphrates ran through it. He had the hanging garden for his wife, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I mean, it was an incredible kingdom. But it too had its end. It lasted from 626 B.C. until 5. 39 B.C., 87 years. And when you read about this stuff and the power that it had, the material possessions that it had, the wealth that it had, you think, man, that kingdom can never be defeated. It's going to be there forever, 87 years. 87 years. That would be like America. You know, it started, and man, it's strong, and it's great. 87 years into its existence, it becomes prideful, and it falls. 1 Timothy warns us about our pursuit and our focus <clears throat> on material possessions and wealth. That's what this is. It's a picture of a kingdom. It's a picture of a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, a king. But it's also a picture of us. And it gets worse and worse with each progressive beast. You see, we begin, our natural tendency is to, is to want to accumulate wealth. And sometimes we might impress our neighbors, but God is never impressed by material things when he's the creator and sustainer of matter itself. You see, we call ours what's really his. We accumulate it as ours and really it's his. I think God frowns when he watches and we spend what's his as quickly as we spend what's ours. We spend so much on us, we have little left for him. Watch what, look what the Bible says in the New Testament about this idea. 1 Timothy 6.10, it says, For the love of money is the root of all evils. Sometimes people misquote this. Yeah, money's, money's evil. Money's not evil, okay? Money's not evil. You got to have it to buy bread. You got to have it to buy gas. You got to have it to buy your spouse something for Christmas. Guys, don't forget it, all right? You got to have it. It says the love of money is the root of all evils. It's when, the, it's when the value, watch this, when the value of material possessions and money elevates itself above the God who created all matter. He goes on and he says some people in reaching for it 
They've strayed from the faith. What's these words? And stabbed themselves with many pains. They pursued it so hard with such fervency that they brought pain into their own life. 1 Timothy 6, 17 says, Command those who are rich in this world's goods not to be haughty or to set their hope on riches, which are uncertain, but on God who richly provides us with all things for our enjoyment. Matthew 19, 24 says, Again, I say it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Now right there, that's not talking about a seamstress needle. Of course, that's the silliness of Scripture. It's talking about an opening in a rock formation on a main thoroughfare in the Middle East where a camel would have to go through this opening in the rocks, which was very narrow. And they said it's easier for a camel to get through that skinny opening in a rock than it is for a wealthy person to get to heaven. Um, it, this is about a nation, a king an individual, a people like us, who are never satisfied. It's just simply never enough. It, it's, we fall victim to this idea that if I can just have a little more, then I'll be satisfied. Some of the wealthiest people in the world <clears throat> have been interviewed and questioned, and, and they ask them, what is enough? And the most common answer is, I'll let you know when I get there. And they're billionaires. I mean, they're everywhere. Thank you, brother. Thank you, man. And so <clears throat> this is about a God being materialism. This beast is about our pursuit of stuff over the God who created the stuff. It, it's, about, it's about a place where the one who created it all is just simply not impressed with what we are impressed, what we are so much impressed about ourselves. And so the lavish lion of Babylon. So here's the warning. Be careful that you're not so interested in a material world that we forget about the God who whispered all of matter into existence in a moment, right? The second beast now comes up out of this stirring water and, <coughs> and the second beast is going to represent another kingdom. And I'm going to call him the bully bear. Not the builder bear okay? Not yogi bear, but the bully bear. This bear, excuse me, this beast... It's described as a bear, but not a normal bear. Look what it says now. It says in verse 5, Then a second beast appeared like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and there were three ribs in his mouth between his teeth. And it was told, Get up and devour much flesh. This is a bully bear. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, ultimately, ultimately Belshazzar, his grandson, are ruling this kingdom called Babylon. And they thought it would never end. It shouldn't have ever ended if you look at what they had. The structure, the walls, the location, the, the wealth. But along comes another kingdom rising up out of the sea, the bully bear. This would be the Medo-Persians. This is led by Cyrus. Cyrus, you'll remember, put in place a transitional leader whose name was Darius. If you look at Non-biblical accounts, his name was Guberu. That's what I call him. That's how it's spelled. So Guberu was the leader. Cyrus was over all of the Medo-Persian kingdom. All right? Now, why is this bear, this bully bear, why is he all, you know, up on one side? Well, most commentators agree that when the Medes and the Persians came together, the Persians were a bigger kingdom, a more 
powerful kingdom and a more cunning kingdom. So it was, it was not a balance of power. So the bully bear is predominantly Persian with some Medes in the mix. Now you notice he's got three bones, three ribs in his mouth. What do they represent? Well, what happened is Cyrus and the Medo-Persians, they begin to conquer the world just like Babylon did, all right? And they're doing it by brute force. They would just roll in by power and by strength and wipe out anybody that stood in their way. That's ultimately how they did Babylon. You'll remember they had such power and strength, they rerouted the Euphrates River into a swamp so they could walk in under the wall to get into Babylon to take over. And so what we have here now is, is this bear that's a bully, and he's got three ribs. When you look at the historical account of, of uh, the Medo-Persians and Cyrus, they took over Lydia, which was a formidable opponent, a huge kingdom. They took over Egypt, and then ultimately they took over Babylon. Three ribs hanging out of this crooked bear's mouth, the bully bear. Now, now here's the thing about a bully. There's always a bigger bully. You know that? Anybody ever have a bully in your life? Yeah, I have one. I've had them, okay? I don't think I was ever a bully. I might have been. I was a smart aleck, but I don't think I was ever a bully. I might have been a verbal bully. Maybe that's what that was, okay? But, but there's always a bigger bully. In other words, there's always somebody that's, that that's going to bust you up. And it's the same for Cyrus. Cyrus thought, man, there's nobody. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, just like Belshazzar, nobody's ever going to take my kingdom. We have power. We have strength. We have military prowess. There's nobody that's ever going to take us. There's always a bigger bully. I remember when I was in college back in the 1940s. Uh, maybe it was the 80s. But I was at Tennessee Tech. And this guy came in. He lived. I was a resident advisor. He came in. He was going to be a, a resident in my dorm. And he had just gotten out of the military, and he came to play basketball on scholarship at Tennessee Tech. He was huge. He was 6'8", 6'9", weighed 300, 325 pounds. He was older than everybody on there. He had a head big as his table, had a beard about this big, and I never will forget, no lie, he had Tweety Bird tattooed right here on his leg. Okay, I could tell you all about it. His name was John McNish. What would we call him? Big John. Okay? Now, Big John was just a gentle giant, but he was massive. He looked like he should have been on the football team. All right? So one night, Tennessee Tech had played, and they won the basketball game. And so we, we were at a party, and Big John was there. And I'm telling you, he was not like a fighter. I mean, he, he was a killer, but he wasn't a fighter. Okay? You know the difference. You know, a fighter, you're in a fight. You know, a killer, he'd just kill you and go on. And that's the way that he was. He just, there, there was no in-between. And so we were at this party, and this little guy showed up, you know, little guy, Little Man Complex, and he was a Golden Gloves boxer. And so if you're the little guy and you're going to pick a fight, you're going to find the biggest guy, Omarion. They're going to be looking for you, okay? And so, so we're sitting at the table. Big John's there. Little Golden Gloves guy walks in. He goes, he comes over and he goes, this is my table. And Big John said, it don't look like your table because we're sitting at it. Just like that. And the guy says, well, won't you come outside with me? He said, I don't want to fight you. It wouldn't be a good plan. And his little guy, going to be bully, he says, come on, bring it. Well, after some persistence and pushing back, Big John went to get up. And before he could get up, this little guy jacked his head about a half a dozen times. I mean, I mean he's wearing him out in this big old watermelon head of his. And we're thinking, this little guy's going to kill Big John. Okay? Big John, as soon as he got stood up and got, his, got oriented, he took his hands like this and made a club. 
And he drove that little guy in the ground like a fence post. Bam. And I don't know if he broke his neck. He just collapsed. And, his, and, and that, this little guy and his buddies were tanked up on liquid courage. And so one of them grabbed him by the feet. One of them grabbed him by the hands. They took him over, took him out and put him in a truck and they drove away into the darkness. I never heard if he was dead. There was never a word mentioned. But here's the thing. There's always a bigger bully. Okay? And what goes around comes around. And here's Cyrus, king of the Medo-Persians, and he's a bully, man. He's just conquering at will because he had the power to do so. And so the first kingdom was about worshiping materialism, that, you know, I can impress people and God with my stuff. In the second beast, it's about I'm self-reliant. I'm self-sufficient. I don't need God because look what I can do all by myself. And that's the world that we live in. It's the power of self. But I want you to know that even when the power of self rises up, God is still on the throne. You see, you'll never move Him. You'll never shake Him. And I want to encourage you as you read Scripture, look at how many times it says God is just seated. Okay? The whole world can be going to hell in a handbasket, everybody raising their hands, shaking their fist at God, and God's just seated. He's not surprised. He's not alarmed. He's not frustrated or concerned. He's not moved. He's not changed. He's God. And He's just seated on His throne. Isn't it good to know that no matter what power rises around you in your world, God is still your God, and He's still simply seated on His throne unconcerned. Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 12 <clears throat> says this about power. It's important that we understand we ain't that great. Okay? Look at the person sitting next to you and just tell them you ain't that great. Some of you wives been wanting to tell your husband that for a long time. And your pastor gave you permission. That's reason enough to come back next week. Okay? Some of you men want to say you ain't that great. It's the truth. It is the truth. We like to think we're so good. I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. You are too. We're not that great. We, haven't, we don't have that much power. We don't have that much strength. But there's a God who does. Watch this. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 12. He says, The Lord is the one who by His power made the earth. That's enough. Made the earth with His power. Watch this. He says, He is the one who by His wisdom established the world. And by His understanding, He spread out the skies. Psalm 66, 7, the psalmist says he rules by his power forever. It's unending. He says he watches the nations. You know that whole seated thing? It's a spectator sport for God. He's not worried about it. He's seated watching the nations. Now, it doesn't mean he's not in the game. It just means he doesn't have to stand up like Big John to do his business. Okay? It goes on, it says, stubborn rebels should not exalt themselves. Psalm 84.5 says, How blessed are those who find strength in you. That's where we find strength. It's not our own strength. It's our strength that we find in God. And long to travel the roads that lead to your temple. Isn't that sweet? Psalm 84.7 says, They are sustained as they travel along. Each one appears before God in Zion. Psalm 105.4, Seek the Lord and the strength He gives. Seek His presence continually. Uh, maybe you're here today and you just don't feel, you feel a little weak. You feel a little defeated, okay? Maybe you're here today and you feel quite strong in yourself. Both of those positions need to move to a place where we continually seek the strength of the Lord and pursue Him and let Him give us the strength that He desires. We don't have to work near as hard when the strength that we possess is the strength that God invest 
in the depth of who we are. This is about the God of power and strength, beast number two is. It's about, it's about a place where the all-powerful, eternal creator, sustainer, and judge of all things, the one who deposes kings and installs kings. It's, this is a beast where we move to a place where we realize who he is in all of his greatness and who we are in all of our fragile nature. Well, that's humbling, isn't it? Where we realize I'm not that much, but God surely is everything. So you have the lavish lion, you have the bully bear. Beast number three, I'm going to call him the lethal leopard. Now notice that as the beast emerge from the sea, they get worse and worse. The progressive, it's the progressive nature of the devolution of mankind. We get worse and worse. We like to think we're getting better and better, right? We're not. We're getting worse, okay? As an individual, as a people group, as a nation, as a world, we're not getting better. We have more, we have better things. We have really cool technology, but at the core of who we are, we're not getting better as a people group. The lethal leopard gets worse. It says, verse 6, after these things, after the first two kingdoms have come and gone, right? Babylon came, thought it would be there forever, it's gone. Uh, the Medo-Persians came, thought it would be there forever, it's gone. Now it goes to the third one. After these things, I was watching in another beast, another kingdom, another leader, like a leopard appeared. Now you remember, they're morphed. As if a leopard is not agile and ferocious enough, <clears throat> this one has some other characteristics. With four, -like, uh, four bird-like wings on its back, this beast had four heads, and ruling authority was given to it. Now this is a lethal leopard. A leopard is quick and fast. And this one now has two sets of wings to help it cover more territory. And it's got four heads to, to govern it, to give it a authority. What is it talking about? It's talking about Greece. When you look at history, you'll find out that the Greeks rose up in power. They conquered the Medo-Persians. They conquered a lot of people. And it was all led by a young man named who? Alexander the Great. Now, if you ever wonder what this time frame looks like, if you saw the movie 300, that's kind of what it looks like, okay? It was, you were powerful by brute force and viciousness, okay? It was ruthlessness is what it is. And so Alexander the Great is the leader of Greece, and when he moves in, it changes everything. He, he changes, when Greece came in, they changed everything. They changed the culture, they changed the literature, they changed the art, they changed the philosophy. This was the time when you read about people like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. It's a whole new mindset. It was called Hellenism. But Hellenism morphed into a thing called humanism, where the human experience is the, is the central thing of all of existence. It's where we live now, that this world is really about you. Tell the person next to them, puff them up, say, hey, this world is all about you. Go ahead and tell them. Go ahead and tell the person next to you, thank you for allowing me to breathe some of your air. Have you ever known somebody like that, that the whole world revolves around them and you're just blessed enough to get, them, get to walk around in their circle? All right? That's where this came from, okay? And it's prominent, okay? It is alive and well today. This place where the human consciousness, new science, new ideas, all the stuff that you thought you knew before, all the stuff that maybe God had told you through His Word, 
All of that doesn't matter anymore. We have a new revelation. We have a, a new truth for you to live by. All of this brought into existence by a guy, listen, Alexander the Great, who was an 18-year-old boy. I know 18-year-old boys. I wouldn't trust them with a cat in a litter box. Oh, you have some at your house. What are you talking about? You know it's true. And here, Alexander the Great's dad said, Son, you're 18 now. I'm going to put you over all of the military of Greece. You know what he did with it? He ran like a leopard with four wings into the world, conquering whoever he came in contact with. Seven years, this 18 to 25-year-old guy led a military world-conquering uh, uh, episode. He, they went to Africa. They went everywhere, landed in India after seven years, never went home on furlough. And finally his army said, we're tired. We can't, we can't go any further. And they turned around and went back home, included in who they conquered, Babylon, who was now led by Medo-Persia. They conquered them too. Amazing how much he conquered in seven years. But now listen, he comes home. Oh, that kingdom, by the way, lasted from 331 to 168 B.C. When he came home, though, he lived for a few years and got deathly sick because history says he had a strong desire for alcohol, strong desire for sexual promiscuity, and ultimately his body became so diseased that he died at 32 years old. Isn't that amazing? One of the greatest military leaders in all of history didn't make it past 33 because of his debaucherous ways, because he was unsatisfied in the depths of his soul. Proverbs chapter 22 says this, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. He was undisciplined. He didn't, he didn't, he just went for the whole humanistic view. This is all about Alexander the Great and my personal reputation and my personal satisfaction. The third beast represents a culture, a kingdom, a people, an individual whose life is all about self. We find it in our relationships with our spouses. We, we get to a place where we're more worried about self than we are the other person. <laughs> Somebody told me the other day, they were given marriage counseling, and they said, guys need to at some point make a decision whether they want to be victorious or whether they want to be happy. You know what I'm saying? There's a place where a guy just needs to say, you know what, I'd rather be happy than win, all right? But we come up with self. Guys do it. Women do it. Children do it. Students do it. We all become about self, and that's what this is about. So in this whole thing, we find a place where we get to choose who we put our trust in, what truth we build our life around. Scripture warns us in 2 Timothy 2.16, avoid profane chatter because those occupied with it will stray further and further into ungodliness. We start listening to the wrong voices. Instead of diving into this and letting this eternal Word of God, the 
theonousis, the breath of God, instead of letting it saturate our life and our soul, we begin to listen to the, the lies and the, and the ideas and the philosophies of culture. 2 Peter 2.1 says, false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. These false teachers will infiltrate your midst with destructive heresies, even to the point of denying the master who bought them. As a result, they will bring swift destruction on themselves. That's, what, that's where we are. We're to a place where our world is absolutely saturated with lies. And there's one truth that cuts through it all. You see, Alexander the Great thought he had a new truth. He had this Greece, the Greek philosophy. He had this new cultural paradigm that was going to change everything. And if you just embrace it, we'll, we'll experience some kind of uh, uh, nirvana, some kind of perfection in our existence. And meanwhile, God says it's built on a lie. And there's only one truth that we can live by. I want you to bow your heads this morning and close your eyes. What Daniel saw when he stood on that shore was a picture of mankind through the ages. Are they very real kingdoms? Sure they are. Babylon, Persia, Greece. Are they very real leaders? Sure they are. Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, <clears throat> and Alexander the Great. But that truth needs to dive deeper. It needs to get focused like a laser. It paints a picture of the human condition that we're so prone to buy into. That man, if I can just accumulate enough material possessions and impress enough people with my stuff, I'll be somebody. Or if I can demonstrate enough power and strength and self-sufficiency in this world I live in. I'll find myself content. Or if I can just have another level of understanding, unpacking the human experience to where now I have the answers to the questions that nobody's really asking, then I'll find myself happy. Meanwhile, God is on His throne. And He's seated and He watches our every move. And He invites us closer, deeper, to a new experience with Him. So He can provide our material existence. So He can provide the strength that we need to sustain ourselves. So He can enlighten our minds and our, our hearts to the truth of His Word. And then, and only then, we experience what this life is supposed to be. Now maybe you're here today and you've heard the story of God. How much He loves us that He came to earth in the form of a, a baby in a manger only to grow up so He could be perfect to die on a cross for our sin. Maybe you've heard the story but it's never become real to you. It's been somebody else's story. I want you to know that story is true. And it's for you. And in this moment, on this day, you can simply humble yourself before God and say, God, I didn't really come for this today. 
I didn't see it coming. But I feel you speaking into the core of who I am. And man, do I feel the love that you're casting in my direction. Not the judgment or the condemnation, but the fact that you love me right where I am. And I know now, God, that you love me too much to leave me there. I feel your invitation into your presence. So God, in this moment, I confess the sinfulness of who I am. I repent of all of my wrongdoings. I want to receive the grace given through your Son and His sacrifice on a cross. Come into my life. Save me and make me new. Help me live for you forever. Thank you for giving me, just me, this opportunity for salvation on this day. And maybe there's people in here that in this moment, you're born again and saved. But just like these rulers in the past, you find yourself at a place where God has not sent you. You've just landed in that place. And you need to come to a place where you say, God, woe is me. I come before you. Help me move forward in a different way. Forgive my stubborn nature. Forgive my selfishness. Help me move forward with you. Now today, if you just ask Jesus to save you, you need to make that public. And sometime now as we sing or sometime today, I want to encourage you and invite you to let me know or one of our staff so we can pray with you and put some things in your hand to help you in this new journey with Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. Father, thank you for being so amazing. Thank you for loving us all the time. Thank you for knowing the beginning to the end. Thank you for revealing what parts you choose. Help us trust in your prophecies of your word so we'll know that the things that haven't yet unfolded, we know they're on the way on your sovereign timeline. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Hey, I want to invite you to stand and sing. And if you want to come and pray, the altar's open. If you just got... We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.